Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks so much for coming today. As always, if you're um, you know, regular attender, welcome back, of course. But if you're new, uh, welcome to uh, one of our services. We're glad you're here. Uh, we are in the middle of a short three-week kind of series on a few psalms. So if you are here last week, you heard us kind of introduce that a little bit. I'll do some more of that today to catch you up if you weren't here. Um, but we, uh, we love the psalms. They're, uh, most of you probably know they're a part of the Bible and they're part of this telling the story of redemptive history. And so we uh, prefer, though, to sprinkle them in uh, to our preaching calendar now and then uh, rather than dump 150 of them in a row on you over the span of three years, that would be a lot. And so uh, we have more of a pattern and precedent for doing a couple of them a year, and that's what we're doing now. This will also set the stage for a longer series on the book of First and Second Samuel, which we're going to start on October 8th, and there's some uh, crossover in terms of uh, themes, uh, David being maybe the most pronounced one, uh, King David's story, uh, most of it is kind of wrapped up in the narratives of First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament. And David wrote most of the Psalms. And so kind of, you know, the idea is what he says here in song or poetic form, uh, a lot of the events of his life that led to that, uh, we'll look at uh, for much of the rest of this school year uh, coming up here. Um, so if you weren't here last week or if the Psalms are just kind of new to you, a couple of things I said by way of introduction and a crash course on the Psalms. There's a lot to say about them, but it's most important to understand that the Psalms are prophetic songs about Jesus, primarily, uh, by way of David and his experiences and uh, others as well. David didn't write all the Psalms, but he wrote, again, most of them. Or another way to say that same thing would be to say uh, the Psalms are gospel-forward poetry from the vantage point of Old Testament history. Um, so I said last week, uh, it's sometimes surprising to people to realize that, the, that when the New Testament authors quote the Psalms, they quote them primarily in reference to Jesus and his life and his sufferings and his resurrection, much more than as maybe um, a textbook or a manual on like how to pray or how to uh, sing worship songs. I mean, that's, I mean we, we borrow, of course, from the Psalms for that very reason, that's, for the same things. That's very good to do. Or nothing wrong anyway, but uh, when the New Testament looks at the Psalms, they're primarily seeing Jesus' story ahead of time, uh, kind of written out in, in these uh, poetic and symbolic ways. And so uh, Psalm 8 actually today, which is what we're going to look at, uh, Psalm chapter 8, uh, or Psalm 8, it does it explicitly. And so if this is a new concept to you, last week it was more implicit this week. Uh, because the New Testament quotes Psalm 8 explicitly, uh, we'll look at that and you'll uh, see more of what I'm talking about. Uh, but because of that, it's a little bit easier to access uh, this uh, kind of this way of thinking. So um, I think that's all I've said by way, by way of introduction. So let's just dive right in. Psalm 8, a little lower than the angels, uh, is uh, today's sermon title. Let's just read, though, in full to begin, starting with verse 0, which is kind of uh, an introductory, almost subtitle to the psalm. For the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the, your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name 
in all the earth. All right, so Psalm 8. Psalm 8 um, is a messianic psalm, again, because of how directly this kind of uh, points us to Christ. I'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, Peter reminded me this morning, Amy Grant sang the song back about a bazillion years ago, if any of you heard that in your mind uh, with verses 1 and 9 there. But um, so uh, it's, uh, it's a great psalm. It's uh, rich. It's, uh, it, it leans into creation. It leans into uh, redemption. It leans into these, um, I'll mention this later, but almost these kind of ironic ways of God working in the world, like through the cries of infants uh, being something he chooses to come through rather than the, most, the more obvious things, uh, whatever that might mean for us. So we'll talk about those things and a lot more uh, here, uh, here today. I do want to start, though, with uh, a little bit of an introductory aside on verse 0. I mentioned this last week if you weren't here. The verse zeros of the Psalms are actually really important. They're part of the Psalm. They're not a, little tr- they're not a, um, a, uh, a publisher note you know, uh, that the English translators put in. Like, this is actually something David wrote when he wrote this, uh, these types of uh, subtitles almost. Uh, the, the verse zero, though, to Psalm 8 says, for the director of music, according to Gittith, a psalm of David. And uh, you may uh, have something like this in your English Bibles, a little bit of a footnote, where it says, probably a musical term or, or something. Uh, it, it, I don't think all, of English, all English Bibles have it, but most probably should. We just don't know what Gittith means. And so sometimes you have these little things that say, this is probably something musical here because of the genre and from so, some things we know about the Hebrew language, but it's uh, kind of uh, mysterious. That kind of made me laugh, though, actually. I don't know. It's not that funny, but it just, it just did. It kind of made me chuckle. It just feels out of place. It's probably a musical term, uh, but just carry on, you know, uh, with your reading of, of the psalm. Uh, but the more I thought about it, I, I, I realized how rare this is in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, to have a probably footnote and uh, how with the gospel there are no probablys. Um, you, you could say in kind of a big picture sense that the probably of the Old Testament gives way to the definitely of the new. The unclarity gives way to clarity. Uh, in other words, there, there's no footnote by the cross that says probably the gospel uh, carry on. Like it, it's, uh, Paul uses the word certainly a lot when he talks about the certainty of being saved by the cross and, and, and the certainty that God will never leave us uh, and things like that. Thinking of Romans 6.5 is one example, but there, there, are, there are many. So, uh, in a way, the, the somewhat hazy gittith of Psalm 8 gives way to the crystal clear panoramic view of Calvary where Jesus died for us. And, and there, there's no footnotes, just every single bit of meaning, I think, that we'll ever need from God uh, because there we, is where God loved us to hell and back. And that leads me into uh, what I really want to say, which is basically that, actually, uh, but I have a couple more things to say today, uh, to spin off that, is to talk about um, the, the first couple of, or a few verses, uh, verses two and, th- or sorry, three and four in particular, we'll, sh- we'll start there and look at this big question that, that David asks in, uh, in this section. He, he basically asks before God in song, who are we? What is mankind that you are mindful of them and that you care for them. Uh, it's actually, I think, one of the most existential questions that the Bible ever asks, uh, especially in the Psalms. One of the most, ex- it's obviously a theological question too, but one of the most existential questions that can be asked uh, about uh, anything, really, but especially about our lives. Uh, from a biblical perspective, uh, who are we? And, and, and what is mankind that you would care for them like you do? Uh, in other words, in light of the sheer size and beauty of other parts of God's creation, including the angels, 
who are we that God would be especially mindful of us? And what I like about uh, this question and the way that Psalm 8 kind of frames it and how it follows up uh, from it is that there's not a clear packaged answer to that question, right? Uh, The psalm just kind of continues on, uh, describing the glory of humanity, but not answering the big why behind why God is so mindful of us. Like, David doesn't spin off and say, oh, silly David, of course, I I know the answer to my own questions, and then just starts to, like, list out, like, why God cares and, and why he's so mindful. And I think there's a reason for that. And it's actually kind of obvious when you think about it. The reason has to be love. Because true love doesn't really have a reason. It's, uh, it's not given in response to work it, uh, or anything we do. It, it just is. If you were to ask me why I love my wife, Aletha, I just do. There, there's not really a reason. There are a thousand things I like about love, love and like about her. But that's not really the ultimate why. It's just that, that uh, love catches you off guard, it comes out of left field, it surprises you, it falls out of the sky uh, sometimes. And so I think those things, uh, that's important to see here in the Bible too, when the Bible ruminates and and talks about love, uh, it doesn't have these clear kind of uh, things to it. Uh, I mentioned first service too, Aletha and I are watching um, one of these, uh, what do you call them, Um, uh, date, uh, matchmaking, thank you, shows on Netflix. Anybody else? Okay. Uh, the, so it, but it's, it's kind of, um, actually my kids are too, uh, it's, kind of, it's really interesting, uh, mostly kind of like we make jokes about it, you know, but um, because it's uh, very matchmaking based, it's, uh, people are looking for things in a person, right? Like I want, I want the person to be 6'1 exactly, I want them to love dogs but not too much, uh, you know, I, I want them, like whatever it is, like it's, right, it's like tons of things that are very specific and um, and no, no judgment at all to like, uh, you know, finding a spouse that way. It's just that even if that's your path into love, that's not ultimately why you love someone. There needs to be, and I think the show is actually doing a good job at that. There, there's, the, the matchmaker is showing that this is just, it's kind of ridiculous. You're asking for all this, but okay, I'll do my best. But then she's like, you have to look past that. And love's just going to surprise you one day. And, and it's going to be, it's, it's not, there's not going to be a big reason that someone's done something for you that, that, uh, that you love. All right? So anyway, take that or leave it, I guess. But that, that's just what came to mind this week. Um, another way to say this, especially when you look at the comparisons in the psalm, is that there's grace in the idea of being small but loved anyway. And so I think like um, a question I would ask with, with this psalm is, are we bigger than the sun? Are we bigger than the oceans or the mountains? And the answer is, of course, no. But we are more important to God than the sun. Like, you are more important to God than the oceans and the stars and the cosmos and the universe. Is that just fascinating to think about? Even just on that level, it might make you ask the same question. Like, how can that even be? Or, or why? We're so small. Um, and so he's asking, us, uh, he's asking us these things, or posing these questions to lead us to theology. I mean, is God here... Um, you know, you could, you could actually say, like, is God asking us to challenge the sun for size or warmth or light? Like, is he asking us to become the sun? Is he asking us to become like the oceans and the mountains in its splendor? Uh, and he's not. Uh, instead, he cares for us in our lowered state. It reminded me of, uh, like, Copernicus, uh, you know, whenever that happened, when, when he's basically postulating and proving that the sun is the, the center of the solar system, that was hard for Christians as well to hear that. This is, 
you know, we are born into a way of thinking about ourselves in, in, a, in a too centralized kind of way, in, in a heightened way. Um, and so, but that's the same idea. It's like to realize actually that the sun is the center of the solar system is actually very biblical. That's very uh, gospel uh, because we come to understand through the gospel that it's not about us and what we do, but about him and what he's done for us. And so in the psalm, again, there's, there's no big ask of God here. There's no motivational speech. There's no bait, or, bait and switch. There's nothing to prove. That there's just love. Uh, this is also why I think the Bible taps into the theme of being children of God so much, like he does in verse 2 in this passage. Or else think of uh, 1 John 3, 1, where uh, one of the apostles, John, just kind of uh, spins off and just almost digresses and says, isn't it amazing that we're, we're children of God? That, like, that is who we are. Uh, and then he kind of goes back to, to his letter. Um, but I think this is also why the Bible does this, why it talks about us as adults, as children of God, because children can't do anything for their parents. Uh, they're not even really asked to. Uh, they're just loved without any expectation of anything in return. In fact, if that is there, that's going to be a very dysfunctional family for the child. If the parent's hoisting on uh, in, in almost um, saying, I will love you if and hoisting on things and expectations um, uh, for them. It, it's it's going to create dysfunction and, and a lot of harm for that child. Uh, in other words, you and I are not business partners of God. We are children of God, the Bible says. We are adopted into his family. He's not our boss. He's our dad. as our father. And, and this, is, this is actually where true change comes from. Uh, when, when kids have uh, a safe haven in, in the home, and they know that they're loved completely apart from what they do. So not on the basis of good grades, not on the basis of sports performance, not even on the basis of moral obedience. Then they start to truly become human. Then they open up like a flower underneath that. And then they start to know how to laugh at themselves and to know how to rejoice when others rejoice and how to ask good questions maybe of others uh, and not always want the limelight. Um, to, to know how to love in return, really, because of how much love they will always unchangeably have from their parents. Does that make sense? That's where change comes from. Uh, and this is true for the Christian then as well, on a heightened spiritual level. The more we drill into the gospel of grace, knowing we're saved apart from what we do, just because we're loved, the more change just then starts to well up within us. And most of the time, without us even trying or realizing that it's happening. In other words, getting outside of ourselves, um, hearing a story that's not first and foremost about us, but we're the recipients of, uh, is always, the Bible says, always uh, going to be the most strategic way to transformation or to sanctification, uh, is to rest in what God has done for us and to just not think about ourselves that, uh, that much anymore. Um, that's humility. That's transformation. Uh, that's, that's the Bible's view of, of change. All right, so then we'll shift gears here and talk about a similarly sized Savior. So the first section is uh, talking about us being lowered, being created in a low state, but still deeply loved and um, made in God's image still. The angels aren't, but we're still made in God's image, and there's definitely nods to that, uh, that idea uh, here as well. I think I mentioned that before. So, um, Then the next kind of uh, twist here is a similarly sized Savior. 
This is kind of the, the, the big aha or the big, wait, what? Is God became this way or, or, or God is this size as well? Um, and so we'll start actually looking at verse 2 here and make a couple of comments before getting more explicit. He says, it's through the praise of children and infants that God has established a stronghold uh, or uh, to quote the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which Jesus and the apostles often quote that version. Uh, that version is, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have ordained praise. So when Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21, when all the kids were coming to him, uh, if you remember that story, uh, that he's quoting Psalm 8, but he has a little bit different version there because the, the Septuagint is just a little bit different. But same idea. So this, both ideas or ways of saying verse 2, both mean what they seem to obviously say. And that is that it's through the extremely unlikely that God chooses to work. I think this is one of the almost countless choir of voices in the Bible behind the idea that God works in ironies. Uh, The Christian God loves working in the unexpected, uh, in the twists, through the side door, not the front door, and in ways that frustrate human wisdom and strength. Uh, if you don't know this yet about the Christian God or the way God likes to work and speak and, and act, uh, ultimately what Jesus is an emblem of, this is a massive thing to come to terms with. Um, so how is God going to win the war? So to go back to verse 2, this ha- the, he's lump- lumping child language with establishing a stronghold defense against an advancing army. It's meant to be almost comical. Uh, The the way that God is going to win the war and establish the stronghold and thwart the arrows of the enemy is by bypassing weapons, bypassing generals, bypassing armies, bypassing the wartime strategies of men, and instead opting to bring infants out in their car seat to the battlefield and to put them on the front line and, and to thwart the enemy's arrows with their cries uh, to serve as the thing that wins the war through the baby's songs and lullabies. Like, that's what Psalm 8 is saying. Uh, it's backwards, it's a twist, it's almost offensive, uh, but Psalm 8 is just saying, this is how God has chosen to work. He's not picking the strongest. Think of David's story. Remember all his brothers? He was like the punk, scrawny seven-year-old, and he had all these, like, amazing, handsome, strong brothers, and God is like, we'll talk about this in our first Second Samuel series, but God's like, I want that one, right? How did the walls of Jericho fall? By walking around them, not touching them, and blowing a trumpet at them, right? Remember how Israel was asked by God, you are not like the other nations and armies. You should not have horses or weapons, just me, for large segments of Israel's history. It's the same choir of voices over and over and over again, this time we had this just kind of this poetic, strange, a kind of ironic, it, it's, it's the, the, the cries of infants before bedtime that God is going to use uh, to thwart, uh, thwart the enemy. So the reason why this is important is, I mean, a myriad of reasons, but, you know, we tend to think the opposite. We, we tend to think God will bless those who work hard. You get, in what, you get out what you put in, or, uh, or what's the, um, the old lame bumper sticker, um, that God will help those who help themselves, like that idea, which is an unbiblical kind of, it's a truism or something, but it's not biblical. Uh, 
Establishing a stronghold against our sin, we sometimes think, comes from tons of stringent effort and willpower. But this is saying God doesn't work in ideas like that. Uh, as hard as that is to, to sort of think about and receive, God doesn't work through things like that. He works around them. The, the, the Bible says basically uh, the marathon is won by eating Twinkies and watching Netflix. It's like, what? No, it's not. It's, it's won by working really hard uh, for it. Uh, but the, the Bible's not talking in those terms, right, for, for, for a reason. It's almost offensive. It actually should be offensive, especially to those who are training for the marathon, uh, but should be offensive, uh, as it was to the, the religious people in Jesus' day. Uh, it's really easy to forget that the people Jesus bumped heads with the most were the good people, not the bad people. It was the religious, good pastor types, the theologians, the, the lawful people who wanted order and, and righteousness in their societies and in the hearts of people. Those are the ones that actually crucified Jesus and didn't want his message because his message was, none of that matters. I'm what matters. I'm not here to flatter you and to come through your work, but to come apart from it. Not through your law keeping, but apart from it. My righteousness is from me. You receive it from me. You don't work it out and push it out uh, from your heart uh, with, with tons of religious and, and moral uh, effort. Now, the ultimate manifestation of this is seen clearly in the New Testament book of Hebrews, where, and this, in fact, it's probably the most important thing to understand about this psalm is, as I mentioned before, the New Testament quotes it. And whenever the New Testament does that, make sure you look at that because they're, they're doing, in case it's not clear, they're doing it right. And so, not that they're always being exhaustive and like wringing out every drop of meaning uh, from, the, they're not claiming that, but look how they do it basically and learn from that, all right? So, but let's just see, everything I've said so far in this sermon kind of comes to a head. The big how behind all of it comes to a clearer head in Hebrews 2. So let's read uh, from part of that argument, verses 5 to 9. He says, It's not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? a son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Okay, so, do you see how he's reading the psalm? The author of Hebrews is reading Psalm 8 and saying, Jesus is the true human. He's the subject matter. Jesus is the true man made in God's image because he's the exact imprint of God's nature, like Colossians 1 says, and because he was actually God's son. He's saying Jesus is the one who became an infant, laid in a manger, made a little lower than the angels, and is now crowned with glory and honor because of his substitutionary death and resurrection for sinners. That's what he's saying. I mean, talk about a plot twist, right? Like right when we think it's about us, or talking about us, the Bible takes a hard left turn and says, actually, 
It's more fully about Jesus. And therein lies the better news, the even better news, that Jesus was lowered for you, lowered for me. He has come to us in our lowered state. Uh, Philippians 2 actually says, He became nothing for us nobodies and became obedient to death on a cross. Uh, Later in Hebrews 2, uh, verse 17, it says, For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Okay, so again, this is maybe not something that we would just naturally see uh, at a face value reading of Psalm 8 without the question, where is Jesus in this psalm? But Hebrews does that. And not only that, Hebrews is saying, not, not only did Jesus become low or was made lower than the angels because he became human, it's saying the word lowered, the trajectory of the word lowered is the cross. Like the, the, it's like he went right through the manger or right through the process of becoming human further down to dine on a cross for our sins. That's how low he became for you and me. So Psalm 8 then predicts all of that. It's a prophecy of that. Psalm 8 is messianic. To whatever degree David is ruminating about it or experiencing it as a human being, Jesus is fulfilling this idea. So again, it's more about him than it is you, even though we share in this reality, obviously. The ultimate, furthest reached implications of Psalm 8 is that Jesus would come to be lowered for you and me and to be humiliated for you and me, to be spit on for you and me, to be stomped on by sinful people for you and me, but willingly so, and burying our sins to make atonement for them in the process. So to this question then of what really makes God's name so majestic, um, you know, if we ask the question, what are we singing about? Why why did, you know, uh, Amy Grant write that song? Actually, I don't even know why she wrote her song, but um, why, why is this, Uh, in the Bible. And what do we really have to say, God, you are amazing about and and majestic for? So I was watching the movie uh, Dungeons and Dragons with my family. Have you guys seen this movie? Uh, Chris Pine, a couple of you. Uh, So I always get like two people. It's fine. You never have to raise your hand. I'm just always curious. It's really good. I usually stand up here and say, I watched this movie. It's awful, but here's an illustration. Uh, But this was actually really good. Uh, I recommend it. Um, Surprised us. But the, the, um, the main character, so a c- couple of things about this movie. If you don't want, it's a little bit spoilery, so if you don't want to know anything about the movie, cover your ears for like 45 seconds. Um, but the main character, Edgen, played by Chris Pine, uh, there's a lot going on in this movie. This is just kind of one arc for him. He's trying to find this relic that you can use once to raise someone from the dead. And he wants to use the relic to raise his wife from the dead, who'd been dead for, you know, the, the whole movie so far. He has a daughter as well who never really knew her mom, and so it's in part for her as well. He wants to raise her up so his, his daughter will have her mom back. Uh, so long story short, his team of heroes ends up fighting and defeating this evil witch, uh, but one of their teammates, Holga, who is a fighter, uh, or like a barbarian-type uh, character, in the movie, a woman who had served as a motherly figure to the daughter on on the left up here, um, because again, she didn't have a mom, uh, gets mortally wounded and dies. And the twist at the end of the movie is that 
the father and the daughter painfully, but in love, decide to use the relic on her instead of Edgen's wife. And uh, so they do. And when she's resuscitated or when she's resurrected, uh, she, she says this. You wasted it on me. Why would you do that? And this is precisely, precisely the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 8. I would say it's the cry of all of us who have come to understand or who are coming to understand that God has not just been mindful of us, but mindful at great cost to himself. And so see, when, when he says, I consider the works of your hands, it's not just his creative hands, but his nail-pierced hands. And then the existential question uh, of what is man that you are mindful of him is actually what is man that you would die for him? Why would you waste yourself on someone like me? Why would you lower yourself and waste out your power and empty yourself on someone like, like me? You know, love has made a person or two do some insane things before, right? But all of them bow to when God sent his one and only son to die that we might live. That's the craziest, most radical, most loving thing anyone has, any being has ever done for anyone else. And the good news is he's done it for you today in this very room. He's here with us. And Psalm 8 sings his song of grace over us. He's mindful of us because he loves us. And even to the point of sending his son to die and be crucified. That is what Psalm 8's about. And I think Christianity is about slowly but never fully coming to terms with how God could be this loving. I think, like, I would say that's a big part of my journey. I'm guessing for all of you who are Christians would give some kind of amen to this, but I'll just speak for myself. Um, Christianity is like one big kind of like arc of this, about slowly but never fully coming to terms with how God could be that loving to me. And then living in the limelight of his one-way love and grace, knowing I can never pay him back, but he's not asking me to. And then becoming truly human and whole as this gospel you know, draws me away from focus on me and what I must do and how I must reciprocate and how I must climb, how I must ascend and just be different now because of all this. From, from that to focusing more on him. And I don't know where all you guys are at with that, but I, I would say um, my encouragement for you is hop on that train. Like it is, um, that's the arc. It's almost like uh, in the same way that the Psalm 8's kind of saying, uh, it's kind of about David and humanity, but surprise, it's actually not. It's, uh, it's about Jesus much more than you. Uh, in that same vein, this is what Christians, non-Christians too, when they first believe the gospel, of course, but what Christians are struggling to come to terms with more and more is that it's actually more about grace than I thought, not less. It's more about love than I thought, not less. It's more about him than I thought, not less. And as you grow and as you learn these things and as you read them with, with fresh eyes in the way the Bible does, it disarms us. And, you know, and, and we never stop asking that question 
I can't believe you used it all on me, wasted it, you poured it out. But God's response is, I was willing to waste my life on you. I was willing to waste it. I could have done all these other things, and I did. I created everything. Look at what I've done. But I didn't waste my life for the stars. God didn't waste his life for the angels. He didn't waste his life and pour it out for a rock or the animal kingdom, right? Like he poured it out for you. He loves you. And it's not based on anything you've ever done or ever will do, good or bad, completely apart from it. And in Psalm 8, in the way Hebrews 2 interprets it, uh, sings this song over us. How could you be so mindful of me? I've done so, so much wrong. Uh, like, like Peter, when he was fishing and called by Jesus, he falls on his knees and says, I'm a sinful man, get away from me. Right? I mean, it's like, why would you call me? I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, get up. I'm calling you, I love you. Um, follow me, right? It's, that's our story as well. And again, that's, that's what I want to leave you all with uh, today. I think Psalm 8's final true and better and final and climactic word uh, is that Jesus has died for us. He was lowered, lessened, became nothing for us nobodies so we might become somebody in him and we might be adopted into his family. If you believe, you're saved. Uh, so believe and trust in him and uh, let him do the work. <clears throat> let me pray.